You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
it was easily compromised, sometimes shockingly so, in the years of the Civil War and after. Once the Bolshevik regime had been uh, secured in 1921, moreover, the urge to promote revolution in the colonial and semi-colonial world was often in tension with the need to defend a beleaguered Soviet state from hostile foreign powers. I shall touch on the sometimes squalid realpolitik in which the Bolsheviks engaged, but my contention is that that their commitment to self-determination for people in the colonial and semi-colonial world was a real one, a sincere one, and that it rose up their political agenda quite quickly in the course of the Civil War. So that's the premise. The structure of the lecture falls into two parts. In the first, I'll sketch in very broad terms how the issues of national self-determination and anti-imperialist revolution forced their way up the Bolsheviks' political agenda as a result of developments within the former Russian Empire during the Civil War, which lasted from 1918 to 1920-21, forced its way up the political agenda also by virtue of the failure of social revolution in Western Europe, and finally by the response that forced its way up the agenda again by virtue of the response in the colonial and semi-colonial world to Woodrow Wilson's 14 points of January 1918, which centrally promised national self-determination. In the second half of the talk, I'm going to shift perspective in order to avoid a standard Comintern-centred account of the Bolshevik Revolution and the revolutionary prospects in the colonial and semi-colonial world. And instead, I want to suggest some ways of thinking transnationally about the processes, horizontal rather than vertical Moscow top-down processes, horizontal processes, whereby knowledge about the October Revolution and discourses about its significance were circulated. And I shall focus mainly, but not exclusively, on China, which was by far the most important country on which Moscow pinned hopes for anti-imperialist revolution in the 1920s, giving extensive money, weapons, military training, and political direction to the Nationalist Party, or the Guomindang, which was led by Chiang Kai-shek, which sought to reunify China, carry out social reform on behalf of peasants and workers, and roll back the influence of the foreign powers in China. And this national revolution, as it's sometimes called, was concentrated in the years 1926 to 1928. And my argument in Nietzsche, in a nutshell, will be that um, the the, um, very partial understanding (coughs) that revolutionaries in the colonial world had both of Marxism and of actual developments in Soviet Russia allowed them to imagine the October Revolution in ways that reflected their own situations and allowed them to project their own visions of the future onto the October Revolution for a crucial early few years before gradually a more realistic understanding of what the October Revolution was about took root. From the first, the Bolsheviks saw national self-determination as part of their revolution, albeit a secondary one. 
the Declaration of the Rights of the Peoples of Russia, which was issued on the 2nd of November 1917, abolished all restrictions on nationalities and religions and asserted the right of the non-Russian peoples of the empire, who constituted something of the order of um, 40-some percent, allowed these non-Russian peoples of the empire to um, self-determine their future. This decree included a right to secede from the Russian polity, though this was a commitment shared by very few Bolsheviks apart from Lenin. It was followed on the 24th of November 1917 by an invitation to the almost 20 million Muslims in the empire to order, quote, your national life freely and without hindrance. And although at this point I think it's fair to say that the implications of the October Revolution for the peoples of the colonial and semi-colonial world were not yet spelled out, the decision of Trotsky to expose the imperialist character of the First World War by publishing the secret treaties that the Tsarist government had made with the Allies did indicate um, a sense of the importance of a direct attack on empire and its effects on the colonies. Those treaties, if you recall, relate to the partition of the Ottoman Empire, the readjustment of British territorial control in Persia, and various territorial concessions to Italy at the expense of Austria-Hungary. Following the February Revolution, aside from Poland and Finland, the most that the non-Russian national groups within the empire sought was greater autonomy within a Russian federal republic. But in the course of the Civil War, demands for fully independent nation-states gradually grew, especially in Ukraine and the Baltic. For the Bolsheviks, the granting of any degree of autonomy to non-Russian peoples was, as I've said, always contentious within the party leadership and secondary to the principal goal of expanding and consolidating their power. Nationalists, however, increased their influence. I would argue that national identity in general is promoted by the chaos of civil war, but at the same time it also exposes the weakness of nationalists caught between the reds and whites, dependent often on the protection of the major powers, internally divided, usually over the social question. Nationalists, by the end of the Civil War, come to appreciate, I think, their fundamental weakness. So that by 1920, feeling no great love for the Bolsheviks, who had, in the course of the Civil War, often shown themselves profoundly antipathetic to nationalist aspirations, nevertheless, many nationalist leaders come to the view that the Bolshevik offer of an ethno-territorial republic within a Soviet federation is the least bad option on offer. In the case of Muslims, for example, the experience of civil war, um, not least the dispiriting experience of those who allied with the whites, shifts the political orientation of reformist intellectuals, the so-called Jadids, who had um, promoted educational reform, tried to restrict the uh, influence of conservative mullahs within Muslim societies. These reformist intellectuals in the course of the Civil War move from a kind of liberal constitutionalism to a more radical imperialism. And this doesn't make them natural bedfellows with the Bolsheviks, 
that the Bolsheviks do um, offer by 1919 to the Bashkirs in the first instance a degree of autonomy which is uh, of a particular kind. It's about a particular territory in which the Bashkirs, as the dominant ethnic group, shall own for themselves. Um, it should be said that there were many other visions among the Muslims of the uh, former Russian Empire which were not based on uh, the idea of territory. Uh, one very influ influential pan-Islamic vision saw the Turkic Muslim nation as an entire group, not divided ethnically, but would gradually uh, come to control a large swathe of territory in Turkestan and Bukhara. But by March 1918, the idea of a territory that belonged to a particular ethnic group had established itself. And Muslim aspirations for national autonomy spilled over the very porous boundaries by this stage, intersecting with wider transnational forces of pan-Islam and pan-Turkism. From the first, the revolution even seen within Russia had a strongly international character, first by virtue of the presence of foreign prisoners of war. There were some two million Austro-Hungarian, German, Turkish, Bulgarian and other prisoners of war in Russia, whose gradual repatriation following Russia's withdrawal from the war at the end of 1917 would prove to have a destabilising effect once they were sent back to their homelands. Six of the 18 members of the Central Committee of the Hungarian Communist Party, for example, were former prisoners of war, including Bela Kun. Others who became prominent politicians in their native lands included Otto Bauer, who led a radical social democratic government in his native Austria until he was toppled in 1934, and Josip Broz, also known as Tita, who would lead the partisan struggle against the Nazis and others during the Second World War. A second reason why this was an international revolution from the start was to do with the large numbers of foreign workers who had been brought to Russia to do war work under contract. There were, from the late 19th century, large numbers of Chinese and Koreans in the Far East, but in the course of the uh, war, the Tsarist government signed up to bring some 200,000 to 300,000 Chinese to Russia to do war work. Considerably more, incidentally, than the better-known Chinese Labour Corps, which the British and the French organised on the Western Front. A significant minority were radicalised after they joined the Red Army or partisan units. And in May 1918, in Khabarovsk, a union of Korean socialists was created, and in December 1918, a union of Chinese workers in Russia, the latter claiming 60,000 members, which I think is almost certainly an exaggeration, but it issued a manifesto and it certainly had regional branches. The manifesto declares, Chinese workers in Russia, by the will of fate, find themselves in the midst of the vanguard of the workers' world revolution. They must remember that the fate of the Chinese revolution is closely tied to the fate of the workers' revolution in Russia. This is in December 1918. Despite the general awareness of Lenin in particular, that the Bolsheviks more generally 
of the intersection of advanced capitalism and imperialism, it's well known that well into the 1920s, the Bolsheviks pinned their hopes on the working class of the capitalist heartlands of Europe, above all on Germany. The First World War had left millions dead and maimed, and entire regions of Central and Eastern Europe were decimated and populations were devastated physically and psychologically. Robert Gevart reckons that well over 4 million people died in Europe, excluding Russia, between November 1918 and 1923. And a major but not exclusive part of this turmoil was the um, rising demand, uh, the rising levels of class struggle, the rising demands for social revolution, especially in Central and some parts of Southern Europe. However, the energies that were channeled um, into making and then suppressing social revolution were only one element in the violence and social strife that convulsed Europe in this period. And the hopes of the Bolsheviks for workers' revolution, especially in Germany, were dashed. Not quickly, um, they continued to hope revolution, but I think in retrospect we see very clearly that the conditions that had facilitated Bolshevik-style revolution in Russia were largely absent in Germany, and even in Italy um, absent to a considerable degree. If one stops just for a moment, the German revolution of 1918-19 came about through the rebellion of sailors and soldiers, through strikes, through workers' councils, and on the other, through a ruling class manoeuvre that involved a rather cynical decision by the army high command to allow the social democrats to take power and leave them with a mess of military defeat to deal with. The Kaiser resigned, a republican government is established, and I would say that is a revolution, but it's a political one. Um, but in contrast to Russia, this social democratic government was backed broadly by the bourgeoisie and the generals, and was certainly not threatened by an insurgent peasantry in the way that had happened in Russia between February and October 1917. The leadership shown by the German Communist Party in three attempted coups was inept, certainly, but it's doubtful that even with a Trotsky in charge they could have survived and retained power. And broadly the same kind of analysis could be <coughs> extended to Italy, where the state was certainly much weaker than the Weimar Republic, and where there was mass peasant unrest, as there had been in Russia. Yet the downward spiral of the economy, those stimulating food riots, factory occupations, land seizures in the Bienio Rosso of 1919-20, nevertheless was a situation in which the far right rather than the far left came out strongest or stronger. In eastern, northeast and southeast Europe, the collapse of empires left what Donald Bloxham was called shatter zones, large tracts of territory where the disappearance of frontiers created spaces without any order or clear state authority. And here, short-lived Soviet republics were established um, in Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania at the end of 1918, and then more substantially in Hungary in spring and summer 1919. But we may note, on passant, the strongly ultra-left character of these attempts to make revolution à la Russe, 
their virulent hostility to national self-determination, their opposition to the redistribution, redistribution of landlord estates to the peasantry, their opposition to any coalition, although in Hungary there was a coalition with social democrats, and their willingness to resort to terror with relatively few qualms. The Estonian Workers' Commune set up in Narva on the 29th of November 1918, for example, quickly instituted a reign of terror, nationalised banks and companies, closed churches, and proposed turning landed estates into communes. It barely lasted two months, and everywhere, given this violent assault on the old order, counter-revolutionary forces, paramilitary forces, were pretty easily able to suppress these uh, threats to the uh, traditional capitalist order. From very early, the effects of the First World War on the colonial and semi-colonial worlds began to be felt. And Erez Manela has um, written a very influential, important book in which he shows the impact of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points on, formulated in January 1918 on the peoples of the colonies. There, Wilson's promise of self-determination was taken literally by many nationalists, would-be nationalists, yet Wilson and the peacemakers at Versailles proved entirely unprepared for the global resonance of their own rhetoric. Indeed, far from seeking to dismantle empire, the British and French expanded their empires as a result of the Versailles settlements, annexing new territories belonging to the defeated Ottoman and German empires. This precipitated a series of nationalist revolts in the Middle East and East Asia. To give just three very brief examples, Egypt in 1919 witnessed massive peasant revolt and worker and merchant strikes, to a large extent powered by economic desperation, but that found a political focus when the British arrested and then exiled Saad Zaglul, leader of the nationalist Waft Party. Zaglul had led an Egyptian delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, only to be turned away brusquely. By no stretch of the imagination was the Waft Bolshevik, but the British chose to see its proposal to partition large estates as proof of Bolshevik influence. East Asia, by contrast, escaped the devastation that blighted the Middle East as a result of the First World War, but the resonance of Wilson's rhetoric was equally profound. In Korea, on March 1, 1919, mass demonstrations broke out after cultural and religious leaders demanding independence from Japanese rule were arrested. By the time the Japanese finally suppressed the movement 12 months later, approximately 2 million Koreans had participated in demonstrations, and about 7,000 of them had been killed and 16,000 wounded. Another example, and one that I shall talk about in more detail later, was the May 4th movement in China in 1919, when students followed by workers, merchants, and other groups, came out on the streets when they heard the outcome of the um, Versailles peace settlement, expecting that the German 
possessions and privileges would revert to China. They were outraged to discover that they were being transferred to Japan. And this, too, is a movement that is uh, in large part generated by profound disappointment at the actual outcome of the, uh, by the hollowness, let's say, of Wilsonian rhetoric. It's into this space that Soviet anti-imperialism begins to move. <clears throat> Already in March 1918, the um, new Soviet uh, foreign ministry, Commissariat of Foreign Affairs had issued a um, statement repudiating privileges in Persia. Um, this um, was a repudiation of the 1907 deal between the British and the Tsarist government that had carved out spheres of influence within the um, area of um, Persia, imposed um, various uh, privileges and such like. And um, the Soviet government denounces uh, this uh, treaty and surrenders its concessions there, handing over to the government in Tehran the assets of Russian owned banks and other property. The following year, 1919, in July, Karakhan, who is um, Deputy uh, Minister or Commissar in the Commissariat of Nationalities, announces that the Soviet government is now going to relinquish the extraterritorial economic rights and indemnities enjoyed by the Tsarist government in China. In both cases, the repudiation of Russian privileges in Persia and China were rather quickly qualified by security concerns, but nevertheless they had an enormous symbolic impact Bai Jital, who was the most talented publicist of Sun Yat-sen, whose Kuomintang Party, the Nationalist Party, revived as a consequence of the May 4th movement. Bai Jital hailed the Karakan Declaration as, quote, unprecedented in history and unsurpassed in spiritual nobility. <clears throat> it was, of course, the founding of the Comintern in March 1919 that really marked the point when the Bolsheviks put the struggle against imperialism and colonialism onto the political agenda. The Indian communist M.N. Roy, about whom more in a moment, told the second congress of the Comintern, this is the third international, in 1920, that for the second international, the world did not exist outside Europe. This wasn't entirely correct. There had been a rising tide of humanitarian critique of colonial abuses, and the German Social Democrats had spoken out against German policy in Southwest Africa back in 1906. Moreover, in 1919, the very same year that the Comintern was founded, the Pan-African Congress also met to articulate a mainly liberal and moderate socialist critique of colonial abuses and to call for home rule for African peoples. Nevertheless, it would be the Comintern that would be the principal vector of militant anti-imperialism across the colonial and semi-colonial world, worlds in the <coughs> interwar period. And it would be in Moscow that many who would become leaders of national liberation struggles after the Second World War were trained. So people like Albert Nzula, Secretary of the South African Communist Party, 
Jomo Kenyatta, first president of independent Kenya, George Padmore, leading theorist of Pan-Africanism, an advisor to Kwame Nkrumah, all went through common term institutions such as the Lenin School. I don't wish to get bogged down in the often fraught theoretical debates of the common term on the question of anti-imperialism, and I want still less to try and evaluate the success or failure of common term policies. But I do want to make the point that from the first, tensions existed between the Comintern leadership in Moscow and leaders of the nascent communist parties in the colonial world. And by the end of 1921, such parties existed in China, Korea, the Dutch East Indies, Egypt, South Africa, Argentina, Mexico, and the Caribbean. And since um, I've um, stressed the interplay between Soviet policy within the former empire and the struggles for national liberation without its frontiers, it's worth mentioning that a key um, focus of conflict in these very early years involved what in Russia was called national communism. The Tatar Bolshevik Mir Said Sultan Galiev was the co-founder of a Muslim Red Army whose 50,000 members had joined the Red Army in July 1918. And Sultan Galiev was the most lucid exponent of what became known as a heresy of national communism, arguing that Muslim society, not yet being class-divided, occupied a position analogous to that of the proletariat in the developed capitalist world, thereby subtly eliding the concepts of an oppressed class and an oppressed nation. His concept of nation incidentally played on the familiar Islamic concept of Ummah, or the Commonwealth of Believers. In December 1919, the Journal of the Soviet Commissariat of Nationalities observed disapprovingly of a speech that he had made. The impression was created that comrades might be proposing the East as virgin land, more receptive to the ideas of communism than the decadent West. And this was, I think, a view rather widely shared by communists in other parts of the underdeveloped world. The idea of the colonial population in its entirety as a quasi-proletariat was quite widespread in China. For example, um, Li Dazhao, one of the uh, founding fathers of the Chinese Communist Party, argued that Chinese society, with the exception of the warlords and their lackeys, constituted a proletarian nation that would act in partnership with the proletariat in advanced capitalist countries. And the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party firmly pinned its colours to making a proletarian revolution in China, a point that I shall come back to. But such notions didn't last long, as the Comintern gradually consolidates its authority. But I think it's interesting that it's a, 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 an example of the ways in which, a point I shall come to later, how people in the colonies imagined themselves in relation to a revolution that as yet they did not understand very well. I shall skip the Baku Congress um, because I don't want to speak for too long, but I'm happy to talk about it. This was a congress 
in uh, September 1920, which followed the Second Comintern Congress by a few months, in which some 1,800 members of um, uh, Muslim peoples, mainly from the Caucasus and from Central Asia, but also Persians, Turks, and others, assembled. I want instead to move on to the second uh, part of the talk, Uh, in order to leave time for discussion. Um, as I said in my opening remarks, I'm trying in this part of the lecture to think about the ways in which the influence of the Russian Revolution was expanded across the colonial and semi-colonial worlds, not so much as a consequence of direct common term policy, though that can't be ignored, but rather as a result of less visible, what one might call transnational connections that worked much more at a horizontal level rather than a top-down, vertical Moscow to the um, periphery kind of way. And um, I'm going to mention just two and then go on to explore some of the ways in which um, this transnational circulation could lead to very partial understanding of the reality in Soviet Russia that at the same time open up space for colonial peoples to imagine revolution in ways that suited their conditions. And the two examples I'm going to take are first the transnational circulation of activists and second the transnational circulation of texts and ideas. In the years up to 1914, transcontinental migration had taken place on a very substantial scale, and one facet of that was the creation of networks of trade unionists, socialists, some anarchists, on a global scale. And following the October Revolution, activists inspired by what they understood to be happening in Russia made use of these networks and of the relative freedom to travel by sea in order to disseminate their understanding of the revolution, to spread the word, if you like, and sometimes undertook astonishingly adventurous peregrinations. In 1918, for example, the India Home Department set up the Rowlett Commission, which published a report that traced the global activity of terrorists who'd been politicised by the partition of Bengal in 1905. And it talks about the networks of these people, from ashrams in San Francisco to shadowy guest houses in London, from seditious newspapers in Constantinople to illicit printing presses in Burma. And one such person firmly in the sights of the British was M.M. Roy, whom I've already referred to, who hailed from a Bengali Brahmin family and who became involved in armed struggle against the British following the partition of Bengal. In 1915... He left India to try unsuccessfully to solicit arms from Germany and then ended up travelling through Indonesia, Japan, China before getting to the USA. There he fell under communist auspices and was sent to Mexico in order to set up a communist party in December 1919. In the Dutch East Indies, the Indies Social Democratic Union was founded by the Dutch socialist Henk Snevit in 1914. 
He was impressed by the emergence of radical nationalism within Sarakat Islam, and oriented the union towards combining labour organisation with opposition to Dutch colonial rule, working in cooperation with Sarakat Islam. He was deported by the Dutch in 1918, but a majority of the union went on to become uh, members of the Indonesian Communist Party, which was set up in 1920. Incidentally, the first party in the Dutch East Indies to put Indonesia in its title. And the leading figure in this Communist Party was a man called Tan Malaka. Again, like Roy from a noble, uh, perhaps Roy's background is more bourgeois than noble, but he came from a, a high elite family in West Sumatra that studied in Holland and then returned as a school teacher before moving to Java and founding a school in Semarang. As a communist, he opposed the hostility of the Moscow Comintern to pan-Islam and sought to reconcile the Communist Party of Indonesia with Sarakat Islam in a common national struggle for independence against the Dutch. But as a result, he was forced to leave for the Philippines and was absent when the uh, communists launched an ill-fated uprising against the Dutch in 1926. Malika's travels are extraordinary and have inspired a whole genre of literature dedicated to fictive accounts of his life known as the Malika novel. But I raise the Indonesian example because Snavelit, who had founded the forerunner of the Indonesian Communist Party, on the basis of his experience in the Dutch East Indies, was sent to China by the Comintern in 1921, where he was known as Mering. And he stayed there for two years, helping to forge the alliance between the Chinese Communist Party and the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party. This kind of movement, then, I think is an important way in which ideas, influences are spread. Just as important, arguably more important, are the transnational circulation of texts which move across national boundaries in the same way as activists. And these texts, socialists, Marxists, anarchists, anarchists, are often smuggled by sea in ships, by seafarers, dockers and others. And I want to stress several points about this circulation of texts because I think it helps us to understand the rather partial ways in which both Marxism and perceptions of the Russian Revolution were, were shaped. From the Meiji Restoration, Japan had served as the channel through which Western thought entered China, and it was mainly through Japanese and secondarily English that Marxist texts were translated into Chinese. And there was a kind of arbitrariness about this, because... The texts that got translated depended partly on serendipity, those that happened to be imported um, by activists, one assumes, by serendipitously in the sense that many of these texts were seized by the police and impounded, serendipitously too in the sense that translation depended very much on what appealed to the taste of particular translators. But it meant that the um, availability of a sense of the sort of oeuvre of Marx and Engels and of Lenin was very, very limited. In China, for example, very little 
of Lenin's works were known until the 1920s, um, whereas um, translations of the Communist Manifesto, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, were fairly well known. In um, Asia as a whole, from Burma through to Korea, through to Japan, through to China, a text like the ABC of Communism, written by Bukharin and Preobrazhensky in the height of war communism in the Civil War, an extreme kind of utopianism. This text was very, very widely circulated, yet it related to a period in Soviet history that by the 1920s was well and truly over. There was now a much more pragmatic new economic policy. But nevertheless, this text was very powerful in shaping people's understanding of what was happening. Many of the fragmentary texts, because most of them were not published in their entirety, came from uh, Tokyo or occasionally from Paris and often through small groups of anarchists rather than Marxists who um, their journals um, were crucial in shaping the understanding of those radicals who emerge out of the May 4th movement, not least in um, relation to understanding what Marxism was about. And very often the first uh, publications of communists in China are strongly coloured by anarchist ideas, um, rather than talk about exploitation in terms of labour, labour power, they often identify it with authoritarian power, human selfishness. Journals of the early communists often counterpose those who labour to those who do not, those who are productive to those who are parasitic, those who are honest and public-spirited to those who are corrupt and selfish, those who are rich to those who are poor. And problems of understanding Marxism were very much bound up with problems of Translation. How does one translate complex Marxist vocabulary <coughs> into Asian languages that don't use Latin script or have any uh, rootedness in Greek or Latin? When the Communist Manifesto was translated into Japanese in 1904, for example, the two translators used Samuel Moore's English translation of 1888. But they have problems translating even basic terms like capitalist and proletarian. And they use, to complicate things, Chinese characters, pronounced the Japanese way rather than the syllabic uh, alphabet that Japanese has. And in the, first, uh, in the case of the first, capitalists, they use a term that loosely translates as gentleman clique. And in the case of the second, proletariat, they translate a term as the common people, which had use in, circulated in Japanese, but denoted those peasants and artisans, even merchants, beneath the level of the samurai. And when Chinese leftists came to translate these Japanese texts, they used these same Chinese characters, which have different, slightly different meanings in Chinese, but still bear rather little relationship to Marxist conceptions of class. And this can be a serious problem, Lenin's State and Revolution, for example, wasn't published in full in Chinese until 1929, but if one sees the Chinese title as an English reader, 
one could quite correctly translate it as the nation-state and revolution, whereas in its Russian original, that is completely um, impossible. And this kind of opening of the idea of the state to the nation-state is one way in which a um, nationalist reading of Marxism, such as Mao Zedong develops, is, is authorised, as it were, textually, as well as by the politics of uh, China. All of these factors, then, the serendipity of the texts available, um, the anarchist nature of transmission, problems of translating concepts, shape understanding of what Marxism was. And similarly, knowledge of what was taking place in Soviet Russia was also shaped by the um, fortuitous nature of the information that was on offer, and even by outright misinformation. And this was much more of a problem in East Asia than, say, in Germany, or even in, um, well, in the United States. Insofar as the Chinese press showed any interest in events in Soviet Russia, they relied on foreign news agencies, and they were woefully ill-informed. Whereas Japan provided recondite texts for translation, strict censorship of news in Japan meant that information about Soviet Russia was hard to come by. And for its part, the warlord government in Beijing put out a flood of anti-Bolshevik propaganda, which was mostly about the terror and carnage that the Bolsheviks were carrying out, or supposedly carrying out, in the Far East. The most reliable source of information came from English-language periodicals and pamphlets published by the Socialist Party of America. But these were hard to come by and didn't always tow a Bolshevik line. And yet, I want to suggest that the absence of hard information could be, in some respects, productive, since it allowed those who felt positive towards the October Revolution at least their perception of the Bolshevik, uh, Bolshevik Revolution, to project hopes and visions onto a canvas that was, if not exactly blank, had large unfilled areas which could be filled in with speculation and fantasy. John Horn, late of this parish, has argued that ruling class fears of Bolshevism were as much fantasy as reality, and I would suggest that the same goes for those who looked at the October Revolution from the perspective of a colonial world. October provided them with a stirring example of apparent success on the part of working people against the old order. But the ways in which they appropriate their vision and use their vision is very much contextual. It's shaped by the pressures of the particular social and political conjuncture in which they operate. In China, the emperor had been overthrown and a republic established six years before Russia, yet the republic had failed to establish viable parliamentary institutions or to stem the tide of provincialism and militarism. And after the suppression of representative institutions in 1913-14, to 14, students, teachers, writers, journalists turned in bitterness away from politics towards culture as the realm of true change. But the May 4th movement reignites interest in po politics, mainly around the Nationalist Party. But for a minority, 
the vision of revolution in Russia, a revolution apparently made by workers and led by a strong, powerful political party, has great appeal. The Bolshevik party is perceived as offering a practical solution to the political fragmentation that has overcome China, offering a solution to a directionless intelligentsia that is loosely united by the idea <coughs> of staving off national extinction, but pretty useless when it comes to doing things that will have real effects. And although the May 4th movement was fundamentally nationalist, gave a Philip, as I said, to Sun Yat-sen's Guomindang, for that small minority attracted to the revolution, the idea of those at the bottom of the social heap, labourers, the common people, rising up, was extraordinarily exhilarating, especially given, historically, the low status of working people within Confucian culture. And when the first Congress of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, convenes in July 1921, notwithstanding the presence of Snavit, Merin, as the Merin, as the delegate sent by the Comintern from Moscow, a delegate who incidentally attended the Second Congress, where it had been clearly determined that national, not social revolution, was on the agenda in the colonial world. Notwithstanding his presence, the uh, leaders of the uh, Young Communist Party opt for a proletarian revolution as being the solution to China's bills. We stand, they say, for the dictatorship of the proletariat until class struggle comes to an end and class distinctions are abolished. And it's this, their belief in the superiority of a Bolshevik discovery of a form of organisation that can really be effective that makes these early communists extremely reluctant to become allies of the Nationalist Party as the Comintern soon begins to insist. For they know this to be a party, or they perceive this to be a party that is opportunist, self-seeking, tending to factionalism. And it's only under direct pressure from Moscow that the young Communist Party is finally forced to join with the Nationalists in the United Front after 1923. Another way in which one sees the pressure of the socio-political conjuncture on Chinese ways of thinking about the Russian Revolution is that in very sharp contrast to socialists in Europe, who constantly harp on the backwardness of Russia, in a curious way, the intellectuals and some workers who form the Communist Party believe that Soviet Russia offers an alternative <coughs> form of modernity one that seems to chime with the values of science and democracy that have been championed by the new culture movement. Indeed, the leader of that movement, Chengdu Xiu, will become the first general secretary of the Communist Party. Um, and his commitment to lambasting Confucian culture for its subordination of the individual to state, kin and family, his lauding of Western values... These are things that he and others believe are incarnated in the Bolshevik Revolution. Gradually, as activists are sent to the Soviet Union for training, visions of the more fantastic kind become realigned with something we might call um, reality. 
those who go um, as members of the Young Socialists to Moscow for a year in 1921-22, start to come back with stories about how backward Russia is. And by the mid-20s, the communist um, fantasy of a proletarian revolution, at least in the short term, has been <coughs> overtaken by a correct alignment with the Comintern vision of a national liberation revolution in China in the first instance. I don't want, in conclusion, to be seen to be painting too rosy a picture of the anti-imperialist character of the, uh, of the, uh, the anti-imperialist dimension of the October Revolution. As I say, this was something that I see as being forced up the Bolshevik agenda by events, both in Europe and elsewhere. And even in the very, very early years, one can see tension between the desire to promote world revolution and the defence of the Soviet state. And this, of course, becomes a major feature of foreign policy under Stalin. If the Bolsheviks poured huge amounts of money into revolutionary movements in countries such as Germany and China, their paramount concern was always also with the security of their regime. And from the first, there were instances where realpolitik brutally triumphed over internationalist principle. Kemal Ataturk, for example, brutally crushed the Turkish Communist Party, one of the most dynamic in the Middle East, but this didn't prevent Soviet Russia from signing a treaty of friendship in March 1921 that provided Kemal with some 10 million gold rubles and substantial quantities of arms. Yet in these early years, I think that those seeking liberation from colonialism had some real reason to believe that the Bolsheviks were on their side. And, that, and my argument has been that almost in spite of themselves, the Bolsheviks, as their hopes for revolution in the heartlands of capitalism faded, became more and more convinced of the revolutionary potentiality of the colonies. They never abandoned the formal belief that <clears throat> the salvation of the revolution in backward Russia lay in the heartlands of capitalism. But a combination of internal and external developments forced them to think seriously and commit, think, think seriously about and commit resources to promoting self-determination and anti-imperialism in the colonial world. Their record was certainly not unsolid, but judged against the contemporaneous promise of national self-determination offered by Woodrow Wilson, I would argue that their commitment proved to be far more principled and far more enduring. Thank you. Thank you.